Future, ge- Future Generations, an IAS podcast. Welcome. You're listening to Future Generations, a podcast by the Institute of Advanced Study in Amsterdam. My name is Tessa Roseboom, and as a professor of early development and health here at the University of Amsterdam, I'm fascinated by the wonder of life and I investigate how human beings are shaped by the environment in which they grow and develop. I'm excited to host this podcast and talk about how what we do today is shaping future generations. Today, I'm here with Huub Dijsselbloem. Huub is a professor of philosophy of science, technology, and politics, and he's the director of the Institute of Advanced Study of the University of Amsterdam, where we record this podcast. I'm really excited about us uh, kicking off this uh, podcast. So as a biologist, I'm aware that all living creatures, humans, as well as plants and animals, are sensitive to their environment. Every human being started life as one single fertilized egg. And we all were shaped by the environment in which that egg became you. In fact, the egg that made you was formed when your mother was in your grandmother's womb. So actually, our history goes back longer than we think. It also means that we are shaping the world in which future generations will live. The decisions we make today shapes the environment in which future generations are being formed, and it will shape the future. What we do today literally lays the foundations for future generations. That is what I want to talk about in this episode. And I'm really excited to uh, kick off this um, podcast with you. Well, thank you. Great to hear what we're going to talk about. And uh, I think my my background relates really well to that. I was trained in uh, philosophy of science and philosophy of, of technology originally. And in those fields, originally, there's a lot of attention for the, the formal requirements of theories and their relation to experiments. Um, how can you arrive at, at, at reliable knowledge and truth claims? But I quickly got more interested in, let's say, the more practical and societal consequences of science and technology, and not just in the in the present, in the now, but also for, for future generations. Mm-hmm. Think about the role of artificial intelligence, of large infrastructures, of course, climate change, but also complex health issues and biomedical developments. And for that reason, uh, before I became director of this beautiful institute, mm-hmm. uh, over the past 20 years, I always combined my work at the university as a professor with scientific advisory work. So I was affiliated to the Scientific Council for Government Policy, to the Rathenau Institute. And both institutes actually have an institutional task in thinking about future generations. The Scientific Council for Government Policy was founded in the, the 1970s, really the era of social engineering and uh, a lot of trust in how to construct future societies. Well, that's a bit less nowadays. <laughs> so they are also looking for for other approaches. Uh, the Rathenau was founded in um, as a result of the big debates about nuclear energy, for instance, and their approach is slightly different. They want to have a more inclusive approach, not just giving advice, but also thinking about how to create the institutions that can help shape a productive society for future generations. Mm -hmm. So what I've learned from that, I think, is that I'm not only interested in the consequences of science and technology for future generations, about in the, the kind of knowledge, the kind of expertise, 
and the kind of experts we need to think about future generations. But I think the only way that can work is if we relate it to informed democracy in thinking about how we can construct the right institutions and the right societal debates that are inclusive, maybe not even for present, but also for future generations to think about the future. Exactly. And I think that's so exciting that your personal and professional background is so much linked to what we're actually going to um, talk about and how, how science can actually serve society now and in the future and how policies are informed by the science that we um, that we do. But maybe before we get started with the conversation about future generations, could you tell us a little bit more about the Institute, the Institute of Advanced Study at the University here of Amsterdam? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, as it works in, in science, successful, successful ideas are always copied and people <laughs> try to copy what, uh, what works well or what's really promising. And the same applies to the Institute for Advanced Study. The original one is the one we know, everybody knows it since we've seen the movie Oppenheimer, of course, um, the one founded in Princeton after the First World War, where also our uh, current minister, Robert Dijkgraaf, was a chair for at least, I think, even for 10 years uh, mm -hmm. or so. And the idea about of the, the Institute for Advanced Study in, in Princeton was to really bring the, the brightest minds together after the First World War. They did not manage to avoid the Second World War, but I think the idea of that institute was to have a community of researchers of all different uh, disciplines uh, all over the world to bring the brightest minds together to, well, not to work in, in sheer isolation, but slightly isolated from yeah, fast speed science as it's going on in, in, in the daily life of science, but to really think about future problems and to develop methods, methodologies, approaches that can help us solve these, these problems. Well, later on, there was um, in the 1960s and 70s, a generation of what's called National Institutes for Advanced Study. We also have one in the Netherlands. It used to be in Wassenaar. It is still part of the, the Royal Academy of, of mm -hmm. uh, uh, Science and Arts, now in Amsterdam. And even later on, since the year 2000, we saw a wave of uh, university-based institutes for advanced studies. And that's how we at the University of Amsterdam identify. We are a university-based institute for advanced study. So we're part of the university, uh, but still we have a different role. And instead of trying to be uh, a monastery where people work in isolation on a book, they're fully allowed to work on the book. But what we really try to do here is to encourage people to, to collaborate from different disciplines, different methodologies. We even have an, an artist in residence to, to foster the imagination of how to work and how to envision uh, future uh, societies. So what we try to do here, and that's why we got so excited when you entered this building with your idea of starting a series on, on future uh, generations, because I think that really cuts through everything we're doing here. And I also think that we have a responsibility as an institute to think about future generations. Absolutely. And, and what I so much like about the EOS is that it's really trying to bring society and society, scientific challenges together and and find find solutions and it's it's interesting that you share that the general eos was actually started after the first world war because there there's there's a link with uh, my own personal and professional history in the second world war in the introduction i already shared with you that each and every one of us started life as one single fertilized egg but that the ed egg that made you 
wasn't made just before fertilization, but was actually made when your mother was in your grandmother's womb. And I often tell people that the egg that made me was actually made in the Second World War, just before the Netherlands was struck by an acute period of famine, the Dutch famine. And after I studied biology, I, I started investigating the long-term consequences of prenatal exposure to the Dutch famine on health and later well-being. So we used birth records of men and women who were born around the time of the Dutch famine in the Wilhelmina Gasthuis here in Amsterdam, one of the main teaching hospitals. And what we really found is that the environment in which these babies grew and developed and the building blocks that were provided to them through their mother's diet had a big effect on the structure and function of all the organs and tissues that were being laid down at that particular moment and had an influence on their ability to learn, on their susceptibility to addiction, but also to their health. So it affected their risk of later disease, it affected their ability to contribute to the labor market, and it affected their ability to contribute to society. So that really made me very much aware of the fact that we are all shaped by the environment in which we grow and develop, and that the um, decisions we make today do not only affect the generations that we see around us, but also those who are not yet born, but are actually being shaped by the environment that we leave behind for them. So that's why I'm so excited that you welcomed this idea of um, talking about future generations and bringing back, bringing together different people from different scientific disciplines, from different societal organizations to really start a conversation about what are our responsibilities towards future generations and what could you and I and so many other people do to contribute to a future in which every human being has the potential to develop to their full potential. So you as an expert in thinking about future generations and with your philosophical background, how do you think about future generations? Could you comment a little bit about how in general we think about future generations, particularly in the background of the biology that future generations are already here in the eggs that will in the future make new human beings? Yeah, thank you for the invitation. And uh, I can briefly add that it didn't take us a long time to get convinced about your idea because it's such a fascinating story. Every time I hear it, I think, wow, what a beautiful research you've conducted there. And it's also really telling, I think, because what your story clarifies to me is that the relationship between us, between the past, the present, and the future is not just a conceptual or metaphorical or imaginary relationship. Sometimes perhaps when people read uh, moral philosophy books about intergenerational justice, it may sound a bit abstract, although of course when you talk about injustices from the past and whether or not we should compensate for uh, huge conflicts, uh, slavery, other kinds of injustices mm -hmm. that have been done, then it becomes already really concrete. But what about future generations? And I think your research really shows that that relation is not just conceptual, but also very physical, biological, ecological. And what also what I also find inspiring in your story is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it combines both continuity and change. 
on the one hand, there's this continuity, the, the biological, physical continuity mm-hmm. between the generations. On the other hand, I guess it was no coincidence that it was related to the Second World War. Well, in a way, because that was the occasion and perhaps the archives were there, but it mm-hmm. was also a situation of crisis and and conflicts. Absolutely. So maybe you can elaborate on that a bit more, because I think that's uh, that is crucial, especially in this era, uh, that we think when we think about future generations, that we are fully aware of the fact that it's not only continuity, but it's also not only radical change. It's the combination of the the two. And that makes it so difficult and so interesting to talk about future generations, I think. Absolutely. I, I, it has made me very much aware of the fact that the future is here already. If we realize that our own histories already started much longer ago than we usually realize, it also makes us realize that what we're doing today isn't only having an effect today, but is also having an effect on um, the generations that are to come. And sometimes the problem can seem, you know, rather overwhelming if if so many people and so many generations to come are affected by what we do today, it, it might become too complex of a problem to even think about. But when I think about the two generations back, um, so my grandparents' generation who experienced a war and see how much has changed in two generations in terms of science, in terms of society, in terms of democracy, it also gives you a very hopeful perspective that things can change and small things that people do can actually have a big impact for the better. Yeah, that's that's a crucial message because we're also, whether we like it or not, um, so used to thinking in terms of continuity and linearity that the future will somehow look like the present but of course it won't it will be perhaps be entirely different but as some historians and philosophers of history have have, have pointed out that it's it's uh, on the one hand there's this kind of general awareness that things are in crisis that something is happening that uh, we are going through a, a period of what they call yeah unprecedented change, so to say. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think that we have seen large transformations in the past, like the Industrial Revolution, the Second World War, uh, periods of colonization. Uh, incredible transitions took place already in the Absolutely. past. So maybe we can also learn from these changes and see how people on the one hand try to foresee the future and on the other hand always had to be prepared for sudden changes because some things worked out well, some things did come to an end. So perhaps some solutions are still possible. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think as a biologist, I often think about transformations, as you call them, as, as metamorphoses. So when you think about butterflies, they start their lives as completely different looking animals that have well, they're mostly made of up of their guts. They just eat and have only a very tiny, tiny little brain. And they eat and eat and eat until they burst out of their skin several times. Then uh, they form their cocoon. And while their genetic building blocks are completely the same, so they have the same DNA, they transform into this really light 
very different creature that still has the same building blocks. And I try to look at society in crisis in the same way that we could think about society as currently a society that behaves very much like the animal that becomes a butterfly, but initially just wants more and more and more, but could actually transform into something that's much lighter and much more flexible, but still based on the same DNA, which I think is a very hopeful, um, hopeful idea. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful image. And um, um, what I find interesting is whether this should have also have consequences for the way we as, well, scientists, researchers, position ourselves in societal debates. Because yeah. sometimes, like during a pandemic or another crisis, people ex expect from the scientists that, tell us what to do. What's going to come next? Yeah. Can you look into the future and tell us what we need to do? Whereas, if I uh, understand you correctly, the message is a bit more mixed. Some Sometimes, of course, when we know what's going to happen or have a uh, kind of certainty about a predictable future, we won't hesitate in sharing that news. But sometimes our main message seems to be it's much more complex and it's <laughs> much more surprising and be Absolutely. open for these surprises as well. But that might be a complicated message to communicate under the circumstances. I think it's a complicated message, but it's it reminds me very much of, uh, well, the, the, the crisis that is just behind us, the, the pandemic. It made me realize that, obviously, I'd studied a, a previous crisis, the Dutch famine, and I looked into previous pandemics as well to see what types of consequences you can see after pandemics, such as the 1918 flu pandemic that killed many, many people uh, globally. And if you look at pictures of the 1918 flu pandemic, you'll be surprised to see how similar the images are. Children and adults wearing masks, schools being closed, theatres being closed. And what scientific studies have shown is that children who were actually in their mother's womb during the 1918 flu pandemic suffered the consequences during their entire lives by being less highly schooled, by having increased rates of chronic diseases, by dying at a younger age. And to me, as a biologist, it really showed, oh, the uh, decisions we make in such crises, such as a pandemic, aren't only impacting the short term, but actually have a really long-term impact, particularly on the unborn generations that do not have a voice. They're usually unseen, unheard, unprotected from, from the decisions we make today, but they are actually carrying the longest legacy. And that inspired me also in relation to what you just said about our role as scientists in contributing to debate and also in contributing to policy making, it made me realize that uh, after we discovered the long-term consequences of the Dutch famine and the incredible impact the early environment has on people's ability to develop to their potential, their chances in school, in the labor market and, and in terms of health, it made me realize that we're doing so little in the Netherlands but also internationally, in protecting the environment in which human beings grow and develop. So that made me very 
passionate about translating the science uh, into policy and practice. And one of the things that a group of scientists and health professionals have been doing in the past couple of years is advocating for the Dutch government to invest in the environment in which human beings grow and develop. So we've launched the Solid Start program, a, a national program in which the Dutch government invests 23 million euros annually to help children give a good start. And that really makes me very happy, but also hopeful that we can translate science into policy and practice. And the fact that the United Nations are currently preparing a summit for the future in which we talk about intergenerational solidarity and what are our duties to future generations makes me think that this is a very uh, timely discussion to have and make sure that we, rather than only base our decisions on short-term problems, try to encourage a longer-term vision on what we should be doing both as scientists and as society. I think it's a beautiful story and um, it also inspires me to, well, not to deny the problems we are facing because they are the challenges are enormous and uh, and it's tricky it's uh, there's no guarantees that we're all <laughs> going to make it uh, uh, there yet on the other hand i think that we should be uh, careful indeed and as scientists also point out that not every problem is a crisis mm -hmm. i think it was last year that the collins dictionary labeled perma crisis as word of the year yeah. like we are living from not just jumping from crisis to crisis, but it's more a permanent state of crisis we're living in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would be very critical about uh, about that also. The way you point out that future generations can already be helped in the here and now. For instance, a field I'm studying at this moment is, uh, is the notion of climate migration. Mm -hmm. Many people uh, have raised the alarm bell saying that the West will be overwhelmed by migrants uh, because of climate change, because of, of, of floodings, uh, tornadoes, heat waves, uh, the situation will become inhabitable and they will all come to us. Yet, if you look into migration research and look into the very complex relationship between climate change, environments, different forms of climate change, slow change or sudden change or a disaster or something else than a slowly occurring change, then the situation becomes more nuanced. And that's not to deny the problem, but it makes you aware, for instance, that we're so some people are so used to thinking in terms of migration, whereas most people don't want to migrate at all. They want to stay there. Right. They want to be protected. They want to be helped. And in most cases, the relationship between climate change and migration is actually a relationship between failed states and migration because states right. have failed to offer the right measures or to take the right protections. So in that sense, I think it's also really dangerous to, to ring the alarm bell all the time. And it's mm -hmm. much more productive to, th in, to think about future generations and a kind of yeah long-term ecological, biological, societal, political protection mechanisms they need Absolutely. To build on. Absolutely. But, but what you're saying is that um, talking about permanent crises also um, stimulates the short-term thinking. But, but actually, we're talking about very complex, complex issues that require multidisciplinary 
uh, approaches and also require long-term thinking. What, in your experience as a member of the council that advised the government on policy, what would help policymakers think about the long-term? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, well, what we experienced there is that, first of all, there's a huge differences between politicians with and without a camera. So I can easily <laughs> understand that people <laughs> lack trust nowadays in, in, in politics. But what I've learned there is that if you speak to politicians, whether they're in the government or not, or in the parliaments, mm -hmm. they're all concerned about these issues, even the ones, well, some excluded, but most of them, even the ones who are perhaps for the interests of their uh, the supporters and their constituents have to tell a certain story about something are really interested. And once um, a member of the VVD told us that he really appreciated the work of the Scientific Council for Government Policy, especially for two reasons. First, when there's an issue that's too hot to handle for all politicians, mm -hmm. then it's really helpful to have scientific advice, to have something that is objective or at least neutral, that's just there and that they can pick up and to discuss so that they then they don't have to raise the issue, but they right. can respond to it and see how to manage it. And the other thing is, and that's that I think maybe for that purpose, we can use this beautiful series on future generations as well, namely to build coalitions. Sometimes a scientific advice uh, is not just an advice, but if you present it in a certain way that there's something in it for everybody, so to say, you don't right. have to make it political, mm -hmm. but just show that there are many dimensions involved and that there are many colors in a problem, so to say. Yeah. So then sometimes a scientific advice can also build a coalition because it can bring some parties together and there's something in it for everybody. So what I hope is that and what i expect is that this uh, beautiful series on future generations will not just bring experts and policy makers together that's already incredibly important to do so um, but we will talk about future generations in different contexts uh, related to health related to biomedical developments related to artificial intelligence related to climate change related to all kinds of uh, technologies related to international conflicts and those topics are already interesting and mind-blowing as such but i think what's really interesting is to have the conversation between these these topics absolutely to exactly avoid what you were just saying not just jump from crisis to crisis but see the relationship and perhaps discover some patterns in what's going on in all these dossiers Absolutely. And I, and I so much agree with your ambition to build coalitions and really try to see how we can build those coalitions where people collaborate towards a common goal and where there's something to win for everyone. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on how you see those coalitions? And something I've struggled with is that politicians are obviously elected every four years in general. So the way in which the political system works is something that really actually stimulates short-term thinking because politicians can only have so much power if they are re-elected or if they are elected. And the people who are actually allowed to vote are not always the people who are affected the most 
by the decisions that are being made today. So, so I think your suggestion of building coalitions and, and making issues bigger societally than only one for one political party is really important. But could you talk a little bit more to the tension that really exists between the short-term four-year cycles of politics and the long-term vision and the need for longer-term coalitions to actually build towards bigger missions that are further away into the future and will affect many more people than just regarding this one particular issue? That's such an important question. I think indeed finding the the balance or the right balance between the short, the medium, and and the long term uh, is crucial in this uh, in this respect. I can fully understand why some people are disappointed in in politics and think, well, they're only looking at the here and now, and not only just the next election, but they're looking not further away than one week the next mm-hmm. press conference is their horizon <laughs> so to say so for that reason some people uh, have become more and more enthusiastic about what's nowadays called long-termism and mm. um, maybe bind politics like odysseus was binded on the <laughs> on a ship mm-hmm. not to be tempted by the sirens and their the singing but bind it to the ship and make a long-term vision and and stick to that in a certain way, I think this long-termism is a new word for what philosophers have always called utilitarianism. Think mm-hmm. about uh, yeah, the, the the biggest good for the uh, for the biggest number of people, but that's also a tricky approach. I think in every dem- democracy you has to have a a good relationship between long-termism on the one hand and taking care of the needs and requirements of the current yeah. population. Yeah. And if you look carefully, then I think you see those mechanisms already at work. Even in the Netherlands, we have uh, budgets that are reserved for pensions, for instance, for years, for infrastructures and investments for for decades. We have a Delta Commissaris in the Netherlands who Mm -hmm. has a a budget that's slightly independent from political decision-making that's there to stay for for decades. So even in a democracy, uh, we have central banks. Well, we used to have a national central bank. We now have a European central bank. There are all kinds of institutions that are slightly more based on the on the long term and that act even independently from chosen politicians. So I think finding the right balance between the current population and their wishes and future generations is crucial here. On the other hand, I must say that I think that's, and maybe that's a topic that will be discussed, I'm not a specialist on that in the, the, the Future Generation series, is whether our current population isn't too restricted. People voting only at the age of 18 might be something to reconsider. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know about you, but if I hear people from 14, 15, 16 years old, I think they're well equipped to raise their voice in this uh, in this debate. I wouldn't mind reconsidering the the minimum age limits for elections. Absolutely. It's it's interesting. From a biological point of view, it seems to make so much sense to also give a voice to younger generations and even potentially unborn generations, although in practical terms that might be quite a challenge. If you look at the Convention of the Rights of the Child, it actually explicitly states that in every decision that affects children, 
their interests need to be taken into account. So it's interesting from that perspective to realize that if we are making decisions that do have lots of effects on children, and, and I mean, there are so many examples relating to climate, relating to education, but also relating to the most recent decisions that we're making during the pandemic to prevent the spread of the virus had a lot of impact on children. And yet we didn't really take their interests into account. So that would be a really interesting topic to um, ask, well, legal perspectives on what are actually the rights of children and uh, future generations. And I believe that's also something that the United Nations is actually actively thinking about and creating some sense of intergenerational solidarity, taking these rights into account. What do you hope that comes out of this? We were talking about coalitions already. I think we agree on that. And uh, in a way, it's kind of funny that nowadays, perhaps we as scientists try to build a coalition and show how it's possible. Because, of course, mm -hmm. scientists and researchers can also entirely disagree about certain topics. So it's really interesting to bring them together and shape a coalition Absolutely. Uh, there. What else do you hope that arises out of these series? Well, well I, I really look forward to just having the conversations and bringing different groups of people and different perspectives together and building those coalitions in such a way that we can actually take concrete steps would be something that I would be very excited about. So building links between different scientific disciplines, but also different societal organizations and policymaking agencies would be something that I hope is going to be um, one of the results of, um, of the series that we're starting. And I also want to really build a hopeful movement in which current generations um, are already working together. If I talk to students about future generations, their initial response is very often, ooh, I get very gloomy feelings when I think about the future because there are so many threats in the near future that I might have to help try and solve, but I have no idea how to do it. And I think if we can generate this feeling of intergenerational solidarity, making people feel that we are standing on the shoulders of the generations before us and we have a role to play in shaping the world that we leave behind for the generations that come after us. And I strongly feel and believe that everyone can contribute something for the better. Um, that that would be really my dream as an outcome of this series to really have very concrete steps that we can take that are hopeful and that will um, spread. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, launching the very first EOS podcast with me and for welcoming the Future Generations lecture series at the Institute of Advanced Studies. I really feel that there wasn't a better place to, uh, to launch this series and to lay the foundations for future generations than here. I'm looking forward to many more conversations in which we link our past to our future. On the next episode, we're honored to have Sir Peter Gluckman with us to talk about the topic from his perspective as the president of the International Science Council. Thanks so much, uh, Hoop. Thank you so much, and I look forward to it. Thanks for listening. 
thank you for joining us on this time travel journey to create intergenerational solidarity. I invite you to think about how your ancestors have shaped you to who you are today and what you might do to help shape future generations. Please reach out in case you would like to join our community and don't forget to subscribe.